Welcome back to the Weekly Bits Podcast, everyone. I'm Peter Chihuahua, and before we start today's interview, I want to submit a PSA for the upcoming Bitcoin 2020 conference. It's going down in San Francisco on March 27th and 28th. It's set to be a massive event that celebrates Bitcoin's culture while also diving into the technical stuff, too. Speaker lineup has been growing pretty quickly. It already has renowned cryptographer Nick Zabo and legendary skateboarder Tony Hawk, uh, but some other big names have been released as well. There's going to be a big block party. There's Bitcoin art on display and a lightning-powered arcade. So to learn more and get your ticket, check out Bitcoin2020Conference.com. Okay, so for today's episode, I am joined by Vlad Kostya. You'll recognize him from his Bitcoin Magazine byline, his video interviews, and maybe some spicy tweets. How's it going today, Vlad? (laughs) Not very well with spicy tweets, but otherwise, (laughs) it's okay. All right, good. Maybe uh, this gives you a break from Twitter for a little bit. Could you actually remind listeners and me where you're calling in from? I'm in Romania right now. Mm-hmm. What city? Are you trying to dox me, Peter? <laughs> Not trying. Don't need a specific address. But listeners may notice you sound like you're calling in. Um, we'll leave it at Romania if that's what you're cool with. I'm in the Bucharest area. So there are like 2 million people living in that city. So it gives me the right amount of plausible <laughs> deniability. Perfect. And uh, can you um, tell me a little bit about what the kind of like Bitcoin community is in Bucharest? Well, at first I thought there isn't much happening, but actually next week I'm I'm invited to speak at an event which is called blockchain meeting or something. But somebody saw my articles about hardware wallets and they want me to talk about them and explain how they work. And I'm actually planning to present to them the whole concept of supply chain attacks and how they should be very careful when it comes to receiving these devices and putting too much trust into them. Because unless they check the packaging and make sure that they are intact and nobody has touched them from the moment when they left the factory, then they should be always cautious. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff going on out there and you can never know when an Amazon employee is very knowledgeable of this stuff and may just implant a chip in your ledger and when you connect it to the internet it calls home and sends the keys. Nice. So maybe a small but growing Bitcoin community there and one that you're helping to shape <laughs> in a in a, a secure and uh, and growing way. So that's awesome. But it, it has some big names. It has John Carvalho who comes sometimes mm-hmm. because he spent some time in Romania. Nice behind the man behind BitRefill. I mean, he is the best known person in BitRefill, but otherwise... He's not a big boss. That's Sergey. <laughs> right. <clears throat> well, that's awesome. Keep us posted on how that uh, speaking engagement goes. Um, but I've asked you on the show today to discuss your latest article for the website. It's headlined, Maintaining Transaction Privacy in the Age of Government Blockchain Analysis. Uh, any listeners who has, haven't had the chance to go read that yet, 
you should go ahead and do that uh, before tuning back in. But uh, Vlad, as I, I told you earlier, uh, I really feel like um, you did a great job with this article. You essentially took what was a kind of a brief news item, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, uh, which is like a tax authority in the UK. They're offering an open contract for a tool they can use to track and identify Bitcoin transactions. You kind of took that news and you asked a much broader question, um, sort of about the growth of governments utilizing blockchain analysis and what that means for Bitcoiners and particularly Bitcoiners who, you know, want to protect their privacy, pseudonymity. Um, so what, what do you feel like you learned about uh, as an answer to that question through writing this article? Well, at first I was intimidated by the idea that governments are doing this out in the open and they just publish offers for companies to step in and provide them the kind of tools which allow them to collect data about transactions that don't happen on exchanges, transactions that happen between people who actually run their nodes and possibly also pay attention to their privacy. Right. And they are doing this because they legitimize it through ideas of tax evasion and use of money on dark markets and stuff like that. But if you think about it, the amount of money that they're giving to this project, which is a hundred thousand pounds or one hundred thirty-one one thirty-one thousand dollars, that's not too much. And it's not even as much as some Bitcoiners are giving each other as a bounty to improve the privacy of Bitcoin. And if you look in history, you're going to see that Greg Maxwell established a bounty for 50 BTC to anyone who develops better privacy and does coin joins in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And it was actually collected last year. And if you think about it, 50 BTC is a lot of money and 100,000 pounds is like 8 BTC. Right. So Chainalysis companies are required to provide some kind of proprietary software that tracks and stores transactions in a database and associates them with real names. And most likely they will not do that because the amount of money is not high enough to incentivize them to provide exclusive services to the British government. So from this point of view, if you analyze the situation, you're going to see that basically if they do manage to get one company to do this, it will not be the most competent one. (laughs) Right. And I think you did a good job alluding to all that in the article. So I think putting aside the question of is this bounty program actually going to yield anything helpful to the UK government or not, um, which, you know, you're suggesting it probably won't. I think, but as you, you know, you also said in your answer there, it's like a little bit maybe scary or kind of eye opening that this bounty even exists and sort of to me suggests that governments and law enforcement officials are going to, you know, are looking at employing blockchain analysis more regularly, maybe. Um, Did you get that sense as well? I remember when I was in Paris last year and I spoke to a guy from Scorechain, which is a blockchain analysis company. 
it was actually funny because he told me that he doesn't own any cryptocurrencies except for Monero. Right. Like the guy knows what he's doing. And if you look up his record, he has been into Bitcoin since 2012 or something and probably saw an opportunity to switch on the government side when the time was right. Mm -hmm. And he actually was speaking about tax evasion as something that he's trying to prevent and stuff like that and that he wants to work for the government. So I heard on the side of somebody who provides services that he's willing to work with governments. But on the other hand, I know that blockchain analysis services are costly. It's not very simple to develop this kind of technology. And governments usually, when they work with you, they're going to ask for the technology to not be shared with somebody else. Right. So they can have the exclusive access to that kind of software that you developed. And when you as a government want to take tax evasion seriously, you probably want to give out more money than a hundred thousand pounds because that's not really much. If you think about it, that's like eight thousand pounds a month, which is still a nice salary for one person in London. But if you want to employ a whole team of programmers who work for you full time and develop very competent software that allow you to get the data that you want to track tax evaders and criminals, then you're going to want to put more money than this. But I can understand from the perspective of governments that they don't want to put too much money into this as it can cause some kind of scandal among taxpayers. You're going to be like, why would we want to pay for this? Right. It's just a small number of people who do this. It's not quite a priority. There are people who don't use Bitcoin at all and do tax evasion. And most likely, they have much more money to pay to the authorities as opposed to Bitcoiners. So why do you spend so many resources on this niche So it makes sense for them to be conservative and try not to give a lot of money. But if they approach it like this, it comes with the risk of developing something which is not very secure. And if they do manage to track some data and collect it, then it's not going to be secure, which means it can be hacked by third parties. And if that happens, there's going to be a list out in the open of British Bitcoiners who own certain amounts and do transactions. And that, that's like a honeypot. It turns them into targets. Right. And that probably, uh, you know, I'd guess that'd be the scariest part of these kind of bounty programs coming out. Uh, partially, yes. Like, so that's the scary part for even legitimate Bitcoin users, I feel like. So there's some level where I can understand they want to um, stop tax evasion, stop you know illicit uses of Bitcoin. But if they potentially lump in people who are using Bitcoin legitimately, uh, track their transactions and create some sort of honeypot that gets hacked, I mean, that's like maybe truly the scary part. Um, So that kind of leads into my next question, too, which is you get into this and more like the second half of the article. Um, You know, you do list some solicit some advice about ways to protect your privacy. um, But they're really like, as you say, kind of power user tips. These are not super easy 
privacy methods to employ. Um, and like, that's kind of the scary part too, is like the average Bitcoiner, a casual Bitcoin user, and we encourage adoption even among, you know, casual users will not be able to employ some of the privacy tips that are probably best practice. Do you feel like those privacy methods are going to get a little bit more user-friendly in the near future, Vlad? I think they are very user-friendly right now mm-hmm. if you download Wasabi Wallet. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not getting paid to promote them or anything. <laughs> but the moment when I saw it, I was just so impressed because it has all the features under a very friendly interface. Yeah. You navigate the sections like you're using some kind of internet browser with tabs. And everything is in there. When you generate a payment address because you want to receive some Bitcoins, it makes sure that you will not reuse it. So you copy it and then it disappears and you send it to whoever is about to send you Bitcoins and that's it. And if you generate another one, there will be another one. This is the best way to maintain your privacy without making mistakes. In Bitcoin Core, for example, in the client, you can actually make the mistake of pasting an address that you used in the past. And unless you pay attention and are always cautious with this, you can mess up your privacy. And the fact that it has Tor by default, which means it conceals your IP address, That's also one of the most important features because transactions can be associated with your IP address and the IP address is associated with your ISP and the ISP has clear data about who you are and even if you paid for your internet service this month. So there's that. With your IP address, you can be tracked and anyone... Even if it's not the government, it can be somebody who just wants to extort Bitcoins from you. If they have that kind of information, then it can be dangerous for your own safety. Yeah, so maybe what I'm more trying to get at is uh, I just feel like there's a hurdle encouraging the kind of Bitcoin user who buys it on Coinbase and leaves it there to the you know, someone who's willing to take just that extra step that, as you say, it maybe isn't really that hard. But for some reason, I feel like, I mean, this might just be my opinion, not enough people are doing it. Um, and just go that extra step to utilize Wasabi Wallet, which makes some of these privacy, um, you know, extra privacy layers, like fairly easy to use. I mean, it's delicate with Coinbase. I know that it's just one example and there are lots of other exchanges that find themselves in the same situation. But Coinbase happens to have a very good record which works in its benefit. Right. It wasn't hacked up to this point, which doesn't mean it cannot be hacked. But it just has ease of use and a good record so people just trust it by default. And that's going to be difficult because on one hand, if they really do have that kind of advanced security, then it's very hard for third parties to get information about how many Bitcoins you own. But on the other hand, the government can get that information whenever they want. So if you want to be absolutely private, 
then you'll want to move your coins out of Coinbase. Right. If you don't trust your government. If you're just okay with trusting a business and you're, you don't mind that the government knows every transaction that you're doing, which is Orwellian, and even if you think you have nothing to hide, you're just paving the way for this type of surveillance society. Right. It's just a good idea to become financially sovereign when you feel ready. If you have been around and you have been using Coinbase for a few months and you know how a wallet works, right. then maybe you should try something a bit more advanced and not use large amounts. Just see how it works. Get adapted to it. And possibly just get Wasabi on your computer. Right. There is no mobile version. But it just works so well. And it's a nice design. I think that's the advantage of it. You can have the features in any kind of other wallet, but it's the design that just looks good and makes it simple. And you don't even have to think about the fact that it's a private wallet. And that's the whole philosophy of, of private by default. Yeah. It has the privacy that starts the moment when you open it. And then you can also connect it to your full node. You can also connect your hardware wallet to it. Yeah, and I, I love that uh, that answer right there I, because I was thinking what I was going to ask is, okay, Vlad, you know, <laughs> we encourage privacy, but like, for instance, um, if I got my grandma to buy Bitcoin on Coinbase, you know, even though she, even if she was just keeping it there, I would say that that was a big adoption win and I'd be really, you know, proud of her. Um, but then how would I encourage her to, you know, how would I explain all the, privacy concerns with that, the history of hacks, um, you know, tracing blockchain transactions, what's happening with things like this, this, this story we're discussing that you wrote. Um, but I think that that advice, I love it. Get her on Coinbase this month. And then next month, we can have another session where I maybe, you know, show her what Wasabi Wallet looks like or start to have some of those privacy discussions. Um, so this is probably the bias I was bringing into our conversation, but the idea that you need to get your bit, you know, run your full node, uh, do everything all at once to be using Bitcoin, quote unquote, like the right way, uh, is kind of a fallacy. I feel like people really, you know, there's cyberpunks in the, in the space and, um, so many discussions about privacy, but, um, you should learn, learn it probably one step at a time. That's how I have learned some of the tenets of Bitcoin and like protect my own Bitcoin. And I feel like that's awesome advice. Um, maybe just, you know, take it a little bit slowly. Good to get your Bitcoin however is the most user-friendly way in the first place. And then when you feel more comfortable with that in a little bit of time, um, start to add some of those privacy layers. And that might be how we get people to be, you know, using it in a more sovereign way. Yeah. I mean, it can be frightening in the beginning. Right. Just the idea that you can lose everything by your own mistake. <laughs> right. And you have to protect yourself from yourself in the first place. Exactly. It's the beauty and curse of Bitcoin, probably. And by the way, as we're talking right now, I just got called out by people from Samurai Wallet. 
Mm-hmm. And they said Bitcoin Magazine should stick to technical writers who are able to perform a mediocre of research on the topic they're opining on. Editorial standards seem to be slipping, sadly. Ooh, man. About this exact article that we're discussing. Right. And it was no affront. I don't want to speak for you. It was no affront to Samurai to not include them. But you just happened to speak with the Wasabi Wallet um, provider. Uh, is that you feel like what they're getting upset about? Most likely, yeah. Because I don't feel like there's anything technical that I explained in the wrong way. Right. Or anything. And I, I just presented the opinion of somebody they don't like. But just for the record, Samurai Wallet is only available on Android phones. And I suppose you can also run it if you buy, what's it called? A nodal full node, which costs like $600. Right. And Wasabi is available on any desktop computer, on Linux, on Mac OS, and on Windows. So it's a lot more accessible. So it makes sense to promote something that is available on all platforms that anyone has as opposed to something which only appeals to a smaller crowd. And also, I I don't want to get too much into this and take sides, but Samurai is using the technology that Wasabi has developed first. Right. Well, anyone who listens to this show to try to get a little bit of the background of what happens at Bitcoin Magazine editorially, I mean, that's a big part of it. (laughs) Uh, Getting some negative commentary because you happen to speak with one project rather than another. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it makes sense to highlight the, especially in the context of this article, the most um, accessible platform, uh, because what we're really asking here is what, in general, can Bitcoin Bitcoiners do as Bitcoin becomes more popular, more different types of people are using it, but more governments are potentially employing blockchain analysis. Um, you know, you'd probably want to go with the most successful option as the one to highlight for adding privacy details. Um, but yeah, Vlad, good luck dealing with that flack on Twitter. I'll leave that to you. I'm sure you know how to handle it. Uh, but is there anything else that listeners should know uh, about this article? I spoke with, uh, because this is basically the reason why the people at Samurai are upset. But I spoke with Nopara who is the lead developer mm-hmm. of Wasabi, mm-hmm. and also Paul Pui, who is the CEO and lead developer of Edge Wallet. Mm-hmm. And both of them are very much privacy savvy. So I didn't recommend anything without actually consulting with them. Yep. And if you read the article, you're going to find quotations from what they told me that should be done to protect yourself from any kind of government attack. And it's interesting that the perspectives are different. I think Nopara, the lead developer of Wasabi, is more optimistic. And he says, you you just do your coin joins and make sure that you connect via Tor and run your full node and you're going to be safe. Whereas Paul Pui is a lot more concerned and says that unless you're a power user and you know what you're doing, then there's no way to protect yourself from this type of government attack. And most users who don't have the time to do the research 
or don't really get concerned with this type of issues will get doxxed by any kind of government-funded software for blockchain analysis. Right. Yeah, it was cool to hear those two perspectives. And I think that definitely rang true for me just reading the article. is sort of there too, the, the optimistic take and the more pessimistic one. Uh, and I think it makes sense that Noparo is a bit more optimistic because, as you've said, his platform kind of bakes in a lot of these privacy initiatives. So maybe he just feels like they're a little bit easier to use. But definitely worth reading the article for those two perspectives, for all the background everything we've discussed today. Uh, so thanks again for joining me from the general Bucharest area, nowhere specific, Vlad. Uh, can you remind listeners uh, in closing where they can uh, follow you on Twitter? Yeah, so on Twitter, my name, my screen name is Vlad Costa. That's how it's pronounced. So C-O-S-T-E-A. I don't think if you look at my name, there's going to be another one, but just in case, because the screen name of my full name was taken when I created my Twitter. I put a T-H-E in the beginning, so it's D Vlad Costa. So T-H-E-V-L-A-D-C-O-S-T-E-A. That's where you can follow me. I don't think you have a reason to follow me. (laughs) (laughs) I get into a lot of fights sometimes. (laughs) I think that's that's a good reason in itself. Thanks again, Vlad, for uh, coming on the show. Bitcoin Magazine Weekly Bits Podcast is a BTC Media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network. It was produced by Graham Peterson and Dave Hollerith. You can find more engaging podcasts over at letstalkbitcoin.com and you can follow them on Twitter at the LTB Network for all the latest episodes. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.